Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. When you hear the three-word phrase, no offense, but, it usually becomes the case that you're likely to be offended in some way, right? Whatever is coming next, you better brace yourself for it. That statement is most likely a precursor for something that is either an issue that they have with you or perhaps a flaw that you're unable to see in yourself. In my experience, when those words are uttered, you, you really do have to kind of brace yourself because at best, you might get an opinion that you don't agree with. At worst, you, you find out that someone doesn't think too fondly of something you believe in, or they disagree with something you have done. Regardless of whether or not the words no offense are uttered, we know that there can be issues when an unfiltered opinion is given. Unfiltered opinion, unfiltered opinions can, can cause some interesting circumstances, can't they? Even if that opinion is truthful, the likelihood of a reaction of some kind is going to be very high. And as we look at our passage this morning, we find a moment where Jesus shares a truth without softening the blow for his audience. And their response is a rather extreme one. While this truth was upsetting to his audience in the synagogue in Nazareth, it's good news for us as people who are outsiders. It shows us that God's grace in Christ comes to all people regardless of our ethnicity. So as we set off into these 15 verses that we've read this morning, we're going to divide the passage up into three main points to help us stay on course today. And so the first thing that I want us to draw out and see in the passage is that Jesus is teaching from Isaiah in the synagogue. Now, last week we saw that Jesus had kept the commands of God in the temptation in the wilderness and that he started his public ministry. And now we're going to start to see what that looks like. What does it look like when Jesus is out and about teaching? He's not just a preacher roaming around on the hills, giving sermons, having people gathered. Yes, that happens, but that's not the only thing he does. He also goes into the synagogues and is a part of the Sabbath day worship. And when given the opportunity to read, he chooses to read a prophetic word from Isaiah and says that what is being spoken of in that prophetic word has been fulfilled in him. Secondly, we see Jesus tell these people that Gentiles will be among the people of God. Now this this comes about because the people can't believe that someone whose father they know is so skilled in teaching the word. From this, Jesus lines out for those people that there are those outside of Israel who had faith in the Old Testament. And this causes some offense, which brings us to the third point. We see that the people aren't too happy and they try to kill Jesus. Now, when you and I read what Jesus had to say, we're kind of like, boy, talk about the all-time overreaction. But we're going to dig into this and see what exactly has them so upset and and we're going to see why they reject him. But in this... Jesus ultimately proves his point that he is being rejected by those in his hometown. He's being rejected by those that he has come to. 
So let's dive into this passage by starting off with our first point there in verses 16 through 21. So as we start off here, we see that Jesus rolls into his old stomping grounds. We saw in the previous two verses leading up to this passage that Jesus was out and about, he was teaching. We see that he was led by the Spirit, and his fame was increasing. Wherever Jesus went, people were excited. But now he's headed back to his home regions, back to Nazareth. And you can sort of imagine how this is going to go. You'd have some people who were excited to see him. Hey, this is somebody that I know pretty well. And I've heard some things about him. It's kind of cool that he's coming back. You probably would have others who would go off on how, oh, he's not that great. His dad did some carpentry work for us, and the wall isn't even straight, right? You know, people have opinions on these kind of things, on people from their hometown. Others would be talking about how they always knew he was going to be something special and bragging about how they knew him so well, and chances are they probably didn't know him that well. We all know this kind of stuff, right? We've seen it. That's just kind of how it goes when anyone from a small region gets any kind of notoriety. That's just kind of the playbook. And when Jesus gets there, he, he did what he always does. He goes into the synagogue. Now this account here is, is rather interesting for us because it, it really is the oldest record that we know of on how worship was ordered in a service in a synagogue. There was a reading of scripture, usually a passage from the law, and then another reading from the prophets. Then there would have been commentary and application of the passage that was read. Hmm. That sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds like what we do. Back when we were back in the book of Hebrews quite a while ago, you might recall me mentioning that the temple itself was not the place where people gathered for corporate worship like we do here. The temple was a place where sacrifices were offered, and remember, only the priests could go in. That was what temple worship looked like. And so our worship more closely resembles what was actually happening in the synagogues at this time. They would have sung or recited a psalm to start off, and they would have had the different readings I was talking about, and then they would have had something similar to a sermon. Now, as we look at what Jesus is doing here, there's there's something interesting to note. They, They had the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and they gave it to him, and Jesus finds what he is going to read. Now, stop and think for a minute with me, about how difficult finding a passage would have been. Now, for us, it's pretty easy. I give you a little bit of time to find the scripture passages when we read, and and most of you make it. By the time I start reading, I don't hear pages uh, making noises anymore. It's pretty easy for us to find Bible passages. We open the Bible, we check the top of the page, and we see how close we are based upon the book, and then we see a number, and then we see a verse number, and then even our sentences are broken up, like English is, into, into words with spaces and punctuation. And so we can even find specific parts of a verse, right? It's easy for us. Very simple. Now, I'm guessing most of you don't know how Hebrew works. Maybe the only time you've ever seen Hebrew was, was in uh, maybe a picture of someone who had a cool Bible word for a tattoo, maybe. Nancy, my controls aren't working. Can you bring up that Hebrew text that's on there so I can see it? There we go. So 
This is a small sample of, of modern Hebrew. Very, it would have been a little bit different from what would have been on the scrolls in Jesus' day. But you can see the little dots at the bottom and the top of the letters. Now those are vowel points, and those help you tell the differences between some of the, the characters. But those weren't added until 600 A.D., roughly. So in the time of Jesus, it would have just been consonants. Imagine trying to read English with just consonants, right? Imagine that. Now notice, there's no spaces here. There's no punctuation. Everything comes together. And then remember, when you think back to what Jesus would have been looking at, there were no chapters. There were no verses. If, if I recall correctly, it wasn't until the Geneva Bible, one of the first English translations, that we actually started having chapters and verses, and that wasn't until the late 1500s. So there were no chapters, no verses, no numbers, no, no sentence structure like we have or punctuation to help find this. It would have been a very difficult and very time-consuming thing to try and find what you were looking for. So what am I saying? Jesus found this verse, this chapter, that he was either told to read or that he was looking for, and he seems to have found it rather easily. He knew how to find it. He he knew God's word. Like I said, we can't tell from the text whether Jesus chose to read this passage because he wanted to read it or if it was in the providence of God, a passage that was assigned on a reading schedule. But regardless, as we read it here, as we look at those verses, we see that it speaks of the work of the Messiah. They're in verses 18 and 19. So as we look and look at this passage and see what it says, it states that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And we have seen this idea with Jesus already in Luke, haven't we? He has been led out by the Spirit. He returns by the Spirit to Galilee to preach and to teach. Luke is driving home a point here when he's telling the story of Jesus to us. The Spirit has been upon Jesus, and now we see that this Spirit that is upon him has been foretold from the writings of Isaiah. And we see that Isaiah also uses an important term. This one that the Spirit is upon is anointed. Now that word We think of the idea of anointing someone, right? But for the people who would have been reading this, what would they have heard? They would have heard the word anointed and they would have thought Messiah. Because that's what Messiah, that's what the word Christ means. It means anointed one. The one that God has chosen and appointed to be the one who brings salvation to his people. And so what does this anointed one do? What do we read about here? Well, he proclaims good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, blind recover their sight, the oppressed are liberated. In other words, the effects of the curse are being reversed by this anointed one. Everything that comes from the curse, oppression, blindness, poverty, imprisonment, all clear signs that we live in a fallen and sinful world. And what happens? The Messiah comes to proclaim good news to these situations and the people that are in them. This is the work of the Messiah to proclaim that the curse is going to be undone. And the last sentence we see from Isaiah says that the Messiah will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what's in view here is the idea of what's known as the year of Jubilee. Now, maybe you know what that is, maybe you don't. In the Old Covenant... 
there was what was called a year of Jubilee. And when I tell you what they did, you'll understand why it's called the year of Jubilee because you'd be happy too, okay? Every 50 years, this year of Jubilee happened. And during this year, the people were relieved of their debts and financial obligations. Like I said, happy times, right? Jubilee. Not only were their debts forgiven, but the lost property was given back to the rightful owners. And so what Isaiah is driving at here in referencing this idea of Jubilee is that when the Messiah comes, the ultimate righting of wrongs will occur. There will be a clearing of debt. Sins will be forgiven. The year of Jubilee is great. It's wonderful to have all your, all your financial misgivings taken care of and to get your property back, but something better is happening when the Messiah comes. This anointed one of God is going to do something greater. He's going to free the oppressed. He is going to take people's sin away. And so Jesus reads this passage, and then we read that he rolls the scroll back up, and he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. We see this in verses 20 and 21. Now that, that's kind of strange to us. I just pointed out how what we do in worship is very similar to what happened in a synagogue. What would you all do if I sat down in this chair after I got done reading the scripture? You'd wonder, what's next? Or you're like, oh boy, all we can see is the top of his head. Whatever you would think. It would be strange. But this is what they did. They, they would stand in reverence for the reading of the word. The one reading in the synagogue would stand. And then when they were done, the rabbi would actually sit down and teach from a seated position. I have too much nervous energy to do that, as you may have noticed. That would not work for me. I'm glad our tradition is to stand. Um, but here, Jesus, the rabbi, sits down. And so, and so imagine with me this scene. Chances are, there's a buzz around Jesus as he comes into Nazareth. He's been out and about teaching, and, and the people there have probably heard about this Jesus who's from their hometown and, and what he's been saying, and he's got a following. So there's some, this excitement around Jesus. You know, Mary and Joseph's son from down the way, you know, he just, I just grew up not that far from him. There's some excitement. And you've heard he can preach quite the sermon and so you go to see what he has to say in the synagogue. And so this moment that he sits down, that's what you came to see. What will his commentary be on this text that was read? And then Jesus speaks these words. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now this is an amazing statement. They know. Remember I said the word anointed was in there? They know this is a messianic prophecy. And now Jesus is saying that this proclamation has come to pass. I can only imagine the buzz in the room when Jesus makes this claim. And this buzz is what leads us to our second point, as Jesus draws out that Gentiles will be among the people of God, as we look at verses 22 and through 27. So the people are initially enamored with what Jesus has to say. But then people start to ask questions, and they, they think about who is in front of them making this claim. This guy can't be that great. He can't be the Messiah. I mean, we know who his family is. Sure, he can 
teach really well and give a good sermon, but he can't be the child of the promise. He can't be the Messiah. He can't be the one that that we've been waiting for since the fall of man when the promise was made that the Messiah was come. This can't be him. He's He's just a guy like one of us. Well, we see that Jesus either hears the complaints or he feels the buzz of the room and he replies to this line of thinking. He knows they're going to be looking for some sort of sign. They're going to want proof. They've heard of maybe the miracles. In fact, we know they've, they've heard of the miracles he did in Capernaum and he figures they want to see this type of thing so they can be sure that he is who he claims to be. Now, you and I can understand that. I I think we would be asking for the same thing. If if someone comes to us making even the tiniest claim, we want proof, right? We want them to prove it. A friend comes home from a fishing trip bragging about his catch, and we want to see it with our own eyes, right? All you fishermen, lying has gotten a lot harder since smartphones, right? Everybody expects a picture. We want proof. Pull out your phone, show me the picture, let, let, let's see it. And I would think we, we would probably have desired the same thing as the people of Nazareth. If you heard that Jesus was doing miracles and now he is making claims that he's fulfilling messianic prophecy, you'd be saying prove it too. You would want some evidence that what you've heard about the miracles isn't just an exaggeration. Okay, we've heard about the miracles. You claim to be the Messiah. Let's put these two things together. Show us a miracle. But Jesus isn't going to give them what they desire. He doesn't just heal on demand to prove who he is. He knows that even if they were to see, they would still doubt because a prophet is never acceptable in his hometown. As I said earlier, he's somebody they know. He can't be that guy. I knew him when he was a nobody. He's not that great. Now, this doesn't seem like that particularly offensive an idea. I think we can all grasp the truth of it, but But Jesus doesn't leave this well enough alone. He is taking this whole thought deeper. He's going back to the examples of this truth in the Old Testament. So he gives us two stories. During the drought and famine in the time of Elijah, there were likely many widows who were in need. But where did God send Elijah? To someone in Sidon, an outsider, to someone who wasn't an Israelite. And the same was the case of of Elisha and Naaman. Naaman wasn't of Hebrew lineage. He was a Syrian. Leprosy was not just a disease that affected those outside of the covenant of God, those outside of Israel. And we don't have any stories of Elisha being used by God to heal any Israelites of leprosy. We only have the story of this unclean, gentle Syrian being healed. So what's Jesus saying here? Those in his hometown are likely to reject him, but even those who are outsiders will hear and believe. To really get at what is being said here, we have to go back to the start of the book of Luke and remember who Luke's writing to. Theophilus, remember that name. That's a Greek name. That's who the book of Luke is addressed to. He's Greek. He's not of Hebrew ethnicity. And by telling us this story, Luke is drawing out that the gospel is going to go to all people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The gospel isn't just going to be for Israel. It's going to be for the Gentiles as well. Luke is driving this 
home. And we know that this is the big idea. We know that this is what is being said because of the way the people react to what Jesus is saying as we move on to our third and final point in verses 28 through 30. You can tell by what happens here that they're more than just upset about Jesus saying that he can't get any respect in his hometown. This is more than a people thinking Jesus is a little rude about them not believing his statement about fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. They know what Jesus is saying here. The implication is that the promised Messiah is more likely to be believed on by the Gentiles than by the people of Nazareth. He is saying that the unclean will believe before those who have been set apart by God to be a holy nation. And this is why we read that all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now that really lets you know how things are going there, doesn't it? I'm sure people have left church upset before, but I doubt any of you were filled with wrath, right? That's pretty intense. It isn't the people left that day upset and went home to eat their Sunday dinner grumbling about what Jesus had said. It also lets us know that they they weren't conspiring around the tables afterward while they drank their coffee and ate their bar. They were filled with wrath. That lets us know how they really felt. To suggest that Gentiles were more likely to believe or that the message of the Messiah would be believed on by the Gentiles first is outrageous to them. Now, I can perhaps understand the anger about a statement like this, but I'm guessing you're like me here, and you're wondering how this gets out of hand so quickly. They don't like something he says, and now they're going to throw him off a cliff? That's like the definition of, well, that escalated quickly, right? They don't don't like him, they don't like what he has to say, and so now they're going to push him off a cliff. Well, for us to understand what's going on here, This is usually, or not usually, but this is what often a stoning looked like. In a stoning, you could throw stones at someone until they died, or you could go the easier route. You could bring them to the stones. You could go, you could go to the edge of a cliff, push them off onto the rocks below, and everything was over. Now, regardless of methodology, they are trying to stone Jesus. They are trying to kill him. Why would that be? Because they believe that what he has said is blasphemous. This is blasphemy in their eyes. You see, they've been upset on two levels. They are upset from an ethnic standpoint and a religious one. They believe they've been wronged personally and that Jesus has spoken against what God would do. He is suggesting that unclean outsiders are going to receive the grace of God before them. And this is ridiculously offensive to their sensibilities. Why would God save those who are not his chosen people? How could Jesus suggest that those unclean Gentiles would be the ones who would be saved by the Messiah? It's blasphemy to them. Even though Jesus made his point from Scripture, they still do not believe. But despite their unbelief and their rage, this isn't the time for the death of Jesus to come. It is not the wrath of the people of Nazareth that he will bear on the rocks outside of town. That's not the wrath that Jesus is going to bear. Instead, he is going to bear the wrath of God for sin and unbelief on a cross, on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And it's not that time yet. And so Jesus just passes through their midst, 
and he went away from them. Now, I just have to say, you know, people often ask, what Bible stories would you like to see? These times where Jesus just walks through a crowd and nothing happens to him, I want to see one of those. That's like in my top five. That would just be amazing. Can you imagine being able to just walk through? Like, oh, you want to kill me? Tough. I mean, that would just be fantastic. I'd love to see the swagger. I, I doubt Jesus had swagger, but you get the idea. You'd, you'd, want, you'd want to see how this went down. Walking through with confidence, and there's nothing that people can do about it because his death is not going to come until his hour. And so this is an interesting passage. But what's in it for us in our time today? I think there's one really important application for us this week as we take it out of here into the world. And it's a pretty simple one. We need to trust the Word of God. Look at the blessing that the people of Nazareth had set before them. Jesus had come to proclaim that the captives would be set free. And instead of hearing and believing and trusting what Jesus had to say and how he had fulfilled Scripture, what did they want? They wanted signs. They didn't trust in the proclamation of the word that Jesus had brought. And it was to their detriment. They couldn't see the glory of what Jesus was saying because they had their earthly ideas of what the Messiah should look like. And it didn't fit with what Jesus was saying. How amazing is what we've read today, that the gospel is going to go to all people, that people outside the covenant will be brought into the covenant. How amazing is that? How did they miss that? What a blessing that more people, more than just your group, is going to be set free from sin. You see, these folks liked hearing what Jesus had to say until it didn't fit with their preconceived notions of what the Messiah should do. And it's easy for us to fall into that same trap, isn't it? To take certain parts of God's word seriously, but see other teachings or commands of God as less important for us to hold to. This is a struggle for us. And it's so important that we hear and believe what is taught in the Bible and that we strive to understand and hold to the whole counsel of God. And this starts with understanding the authority of Scripture that it has in our lives and a trust that when Scripture speaks, it is actually God speaking clearly to us in His Word. So may we not put ourselves over the Word of God, but instead sit under it, that we might be faithful servants who proclaim the good news, that in Christ, those who were captive in sin have been set free. Those who were blind in their sin and unbelief, they've been given sight to see the truth. And those oppressed by sin and the devil, they've been set free. They have been given liberty. All these things are true because this proclamation comes to us from the word of God. So we're called to hear and believe the good news that God brings all people, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their ethnicity, he brings them together that we might have faith and trust and hope in the amazing salvation that he brings. He has set the captives free. May we live in freedom, trusting in his holy word. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.